Midnight wake-ups with the wet bed, uh, bringing, bringing mom and dad in to help, or crying because I was scared. Most of the time, I was scared because my brother's snore sounded like a, a dog growling. And so I would literally have bad dreams. Uh, but Scott and I shared a room, and when you share a room with a sibling like that, there is some, uh, there's some, uh, you know, a little, little bit of friction, some fighting that happens. And so what we had is we had Scott's side of the room, and we had Brad's side of the room. And we literally had tape that would go and then up the wall a little bit because Dad didn't want us to put duct tape on the drywall. And so it just went up on the border, and this was the room. So when we cleaned the room, we got as close to that line as possible. And if there was any, any kind of question over whose mess it was, we'd boot it to the other side. Uh, and it, it, the line started as you would just walk in, and then you would you walk through the door, and then you'd have to choose what side are you on. And so this was fun. Scott's side of the room, I had the window, which is great. Scott had the clock. And here's the problem with the clock. The clock had a radio on it. And Scott liked to go to sleep to music, not just any music. There was a station in L.A. at the time called Coast 103.5. And it was love songs on the coast every night from 8 p.m. to midnight. And what would happen is when people would call in and they would dedicate a song to, the, to their crush... And hopefully their crush would be listening, and then, you know, so-and-so. So I'm sitting there, eight years old, listening to Jana from Orange dedicate Richard Marks, You're My Inspiration, to Mike. That's a great song, by the way. Those of you young ones who don't know Richard Marks, that guy was good. To, 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 to her crush, whoever it was, in Orange, and I knew at age eight, there's no way that that dude is listening to Coast 105.3. Right now, it is just not happening. But there was, Scott and I had divisions in our room. We were the same house, same room, same family. I was annoyed with him when it came to bedtime. He was annoyed to me after bedtime. But, and there were other things, it was always his fault. I was the youngest, so there was, uh, I was always the perfect one. Scott got in trouble, but we were under the same roof. At the same time, we were extremely divided. Now, you go back to that room, you take the tape away, and you look at each other and goes, this is all one big room, it's all one big house. You guys are actually related brothers, even though we have a debate whether or not he's adopted. But we go back and forth. It's a joke that my mom hates. But we go back, we, we, we just say, this was a stupid argument to be arguing over because there is really no division between us. And so Paul is writing this letter to Ephesians. He's writing them, and he's been very careful leading up to this point to tell the people of Ephesus that they've been brought into a new family. They've been brought into a new house. They've been brought into a new existence. He calls it the new humanity, which he'll, we'll talk about a lot later. But he says, you are not who you were. You are now this person. You've been brought under this house. You are adopted. Everyone's together. Now, why are there so many divisions among you? Why can't you all get along, is what was always said to my brother and I. Why can't you two get along and stop fighting? This is what the new humanity that Paul was wanting to get to uh, for the people of Ephesus, was that all of these people who come from different backgrounds, who have nothing in common with each other but Jesus, all in one room, worshiping together. This is what Paul's getting to, but that has some problems because as we know from our day, it's hard to get everybody in one room to agree on something. 
But Paul goes to great lengths to describe that these divisions that they have are actually standing in opposition to what Christ had with them. And he says, if you want to be a a reconciled church, you have to mend these divisions because these divisions are not safe. These divisions will actually cause your entire church to crumble. So he says, be reconciled together, become one, stop with this division so that you are able to live into the purpose that Christ has for you and your church. So, since we're speaking about divisions, if you have your Bibles, we're going to divide this passage up into three. I thought that was funny. When I, when I wrote it, it was not. Uh, there's three sections in this passage. Paul looks at what divides. Paul then looks at what unites. And then it's the, so what now? What do we do now? Paul looks first and says, uh, what divides? Paul's bringing up divisions that have been plaguing the nation of Israel since Genesis. There has been, since the beginning, there has been people who were Jewish and then everybody else in the world. And that goes back to Genesis 12 where God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a special nation. I'm going to call you especially and you'll be marked by, by circumcision. You'll be marked by my covenant. This is who you are. So this took, was, a, was a matter of pride for the, for the people of Israel. However, if you were not a person of Israel, if you were not a Jewish person, this would be hostility. Even though God clearly said in Genesis that through this nation, the entire world would be blessed, that was the point. It was never just about Israel. It was Israel for everybody else. They made it a a tribal thing, a nationalistic thing. It was never about Israel. It was always about everyone. So the people of Israel would make these rules and some scholars have looked back and said that they actually thought about Gentiles, that Gentiles were, were, were the ones who will fuel the fires of hell with their bodies. This is good when you want to talk about reconciliation, right? Bring up that teaching. There was also a division, there's division there and it got even worse, it got even further and it said that if a Gentile and, and a Jewish person would get married, the Jewish family would hold a, a funeral for their family member who got married because they are dead to them. It wasn't just the Jews that had this division. It wasn't always them. The Gentiles had the same kind of hostility. These are two radically opposed groups. The people who came to Christ after, uh, after Jesus, they met Jesus, they looked at what the Jewish people were doing and goes, why do we need the Old Testament? Why do we need Judaism? Who is this Moses guy? Why does he even matter? We don't need your teachings. We came to Christ through Christ, not through your faith, so you guys don't really matter. So there was this division, this pride on either side of of the church. You had the Jews and you had the Gentiles, and in first century Christianity, this was a major division. There was also a division within society. Roman society in that day was extremely divided. People had broken off and classified along the lines of rich and poor, ethnicity, looks and prestige. You were a Roman citizen and you had all the privileges. And then if you weren't, you'd had zero privileges. Uh, On one end, you would have ridiculous wealth. And on the other, you'd have people just scraping by to live. You had slave and free, male and female. And when you talk about these divisions and you bring them up, it just it heats up the divisions and then you have more infighting and conflict and people butting heads and pretty soon you're like my brother and I arguing over the radio's too loud. 
and you forget that you're all a part of the same family and the same house. In that day, you couldn't pick a group of people that are more opposite and antagonistic towards each other. And they're all gathered together in a little house that seats about 15 to 20 people, and they call themselves the church in Ephesus. So you tell me, how's that going to go? All of these divisions gathered together, worshiping together. So Paul says this, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth are called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is something that is done by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promises, without hope, without God in the world. So this is being read, and all the Jewish people are going, yeah, you take that, Gentiles. What he's saying is, Gentiles, you think you're so pride, remember who you were. You, didn't, you, you were once outside of this all. Remember that. And then when everyone's going, yeah, 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 and then he says this, but now in Christ, you who were once far away, Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace that has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. This dividing wall of hostility would have gotten the, the Jewish people in, in the room going, oh, okay, this is about us. This dividing wall of hostility was a real thing. Uh, Mr. Dave, fire up that PowerPoint. We have a slide for this. It's referring to the temple. Is it there? It's there. Herod's temple. This is the second temple. Solomon's was destroyed. King Herod came back and he made a new one. When he made this one, he put the center uh, of that part. You see it. It's not really totally 3D, but can you imagine? It's raised. And in the raised part was the court of Israel, was the court of men, was the court of women. Inside there, only Jewish people can get into the center of the courts. Then, if you were to go out the door, you'd walk down five steps, you'd turn a corner, you'd go through a wall, you'd go down 14 more steps, and there'd be another wall. Then, you have the court of Gentiles. Do you see the walls between the divisions that separate? If a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, were to walk in and nearly peek over the wall to where only the Jewish people were, they would be responsible and liable if they were executed. It is their fault. This was the dividing wall that Paul's saying. He's saying, hey, you Gentiles, you, you were far away, but hold on, Jewish people. This barrier that we've built between everybody, that is gone. We don't have this among us anymore, this, this barrier between us. And so in Acts 21, Paul tests this. He brings somebody from Ephesus, a Gentile, a believer in Christ, brings him into the temple, takes him into the inner courts, and they almost have a riot. So this was a very sore, touchy subject in that day. There was divisions. And so Paul is writing that says, if you want to know what the symbol of Gentile alienation was between God and his people, it was that wall. It was that if you could see the temple from the Gentile courts, you could hear the worships, you can probably hear the teachings, but you were far away. And so Paul is pointing out all of the ways that they were divided along religious, social, 
economic, theological, gender, racial, and any other ways of dividing and separating people of that day. Now, I know it's super hard to think of a society that is that polarized. It's really difficult. I'll give you a minute to look out the window because this sort of looks like our world, doesn't it? We're divided. In this room, we're divided. We have different aspects and viewpoints of everything. And so Paul is writing this letter to Ephesus, but he really, he can be writing this to us too. Paul, in a matter of sentences, is overturning thousands of years of, pre- of, of precedence that gave allowance to this sort of division. The point that he's coming to is that in a church like theirs, there should be a place where this kind of division doesn't happen. And so he's building his case. The church was now the ones who were representing this new humanity. They should be the ones who are putting on display a better way of living, a way where people from different viewpoints, backgrounds, ethnicities, places to live, theological stances, preferences can come together with nothing in common but Christ and worship. This is the new humanity that Paul is is trying to get the Ephesians to live into. This is what unites us. The new humanity, according to Paul, is all of us coming together because in the new humanity, there is no room for divisions. Paul is addressing our spatial problems. We all have needs for divisions. We all have these needs to keep people in their right category. We love to do it. I love to do it. Paul is addressing this. And he says that in reality, all of us are far from God. And as a result of that, we become even further from each other. But in Christ, a new humanity is being born. There is no longer needs for division. In verse 13, this is on the basis of Christ and the cross. It's on the basis of unity of what Christ did on the cross. Then in verse 14, it's because of this that Jesus is the peace that can bring the sides together. We can negotiate, we can confess, we can forgive, we can dialogue, we can relate. And all of those things are important when it comes to reconciliation. But all of those things are are useless until we have the person of Christ in the middle of it all. And this is where it also becomes super theological and super technical. And this is also a place where we have divisions because we start talking about the death and the reasoning of of Christ's death and resurrection and what it all meant and how Christ brings us near. But we can all agree on something, that Jesus is the source of the peace that unites us. All of us can come together from different viewpoints and unite around the person of Christ. Jesus doesn't bring us a new philosophy. He doesn't bring us new practices. Jesus is the peace. He's the center. He's the focal point. Because when it's all because he has taken down the wall, he becomes the source of peace. But notice this. Peace is not the absence of the conflict. Just because you have peace doesn't mean that you're not going to get irritated with people. Peace is the presence of wholeness that Jesus is talking about here, that Paul is talking about here. It's a different kind of peace. It's you've been made whole. The dividing walls in your heart have been taken down. And wholeness is the only thing that we can get from Christ. This is the message that should be elevated. This is the message that should occupy our bumper stickers and be declared with every single single fiber of our being. 
There is a source of peace because the world longs for peace. It's a longing that's been placed in all of our hearts for every single one of us to be made whole. Because when we're honest with ourselves, the divisions that we see in the world uh, that stem from the divisions in our own heart, every division that we see comes from a place of brokenness. We have lenses in our hearts that divide the world for us and around us. And this is where it all begins. And if Christ doesn't make your heart whole, then we could talk until we're blue in the face about reconciliation. But the first step that heals the divides is a relationship with Christ that makes the divide in your heart go away. And then, when you see the divide in your heart go away, you can look at your brother and sister who might be different from you, and then you find yourself both kneeling at the foot of the cross. You're both on the level ground. And knowing this is where we begin. This is what unites us. Paul says in verse 15, By setting aside in his flesh the law, with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. This doesn't mean that we sit around and wait for the peace to happen, because Jesus created the peace himself, and the result is intended to be a new creation, a new humanity right here, Right now, no more dividing walls, no more hostility. Why? Because we've seen the reality that these walls have been broken by the person of Christ and we've been joined together. This is why Paul says this in Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 26. It'll be on the screen. We can read it together. So in Christ Jesus, all, you all were children of God through faith. For all of you have been baptized into Christ. You've enclosed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave, free, male, female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Those divisions are gone because of Jesus. It's a done deal. This isn't a perhaps thing that Paul is talking about. This isn't a suggestion. This is a declarative statement. Paul's saying, this is it. No more divisions. It's been done. Paul goes into the room of my brother and I and he rips up the tape and goes, one house, one family, you guys are brothers, figure this out, you belong together, no more his side, my side, no more animosity. You are now one. But here's the thing. Paul is looking at two divisions, Jew and Gentile. In our divided world, We have millions of ways of dividing people, don't we? Republican, Democrat, rich, poor, view on divorce, view on marriage, uh, view on gun control, view on the head tax, view on city council, view on how to respond to homelessness. Just look around. We have tons of ways to divide, but we must realize that people who disagree with us can also share Christ with us. So we can get off our pedestal and stop pretending we know everything perfectly well when we don't. Because we seek Christ together. And we can elevate Christ together. And we'll see this in chapter 4 in a couple weeks. Those who love Christ are united by their love of Christ. Those who love Christ and, and pursue Christ are not, are not united by every single doctrinal nu- uh, nuance. I almost called it a nuisance because sometimes it is. Those who seek Christ are not united on politics. We're united on Christ. 
Those who seek Christ are not united on a view of a border wall or a view of marriage or a view on anything. We're we're united on Christ and Christ alone because that's what, if we elevate Christ above every single division, we all pursue Christ together, the divisions go away. One thing I hope that we'll see in, in Ephesians and I hope that we'll be able to relate it to ourselves and our own lives in, in Ephesians, Paul is trying to get us to see that the work of Jesus is bigger than just forgiveness of sins. Paul is trying to get the people of Ephesians to say that God, Jesus doesn't just reconcile us to God, which is amazing. Part of this new humanity is being reconciled with each other, is being reconciled with you and I. We are reconciled to God. Now we're reconciled to our neighbors. So what do we do with this now? So Paul said, this is what divides us. We're divided along so many lines. What unites us is Christ. And do you see what Paul is trying to do here, what the picture he's trying to paint? He begins with this idea of a divided temple. Your temple is divided. You have a dividing wall of hostility. You're keeping people far while other people go near. So Paul is playing with some metaphors here. And here's what he says. Consequently, in verse 19, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens. So in the beginning of this section, you are separate. You are alienated. Now he's saying you are fellow citizens. It's a metaphor. It's a kingdom metaphor. The word Paul uses there, paleto, is where we get our our politic word. And he's saying this, you are not just Roman citizens or citizens of Israel. You are now citizens of the kingdom of God, which is ruled by God. And being a citizen means that you have all the privileges and rights of being a citizen. He goes back to chapter 1 and says, we've been adopted, we've been made into this new kingdom. Paul's saying, because of that, these political divides we have, gone. And then he says this, and also we've been members of the same household. Being a citizen is one thing, but being a member of the same family is another. Being a member together in the same family, you've been adopted in. The Gentiles have been brought in to the nation of Israel. Now they are one person. They are one new humanity. No more divisions. And then in verse 20, this is where Paul were to get a little bit controversial if he's not already. In verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together, becoming a dwelling which God lives by his spirit. Both citizens and family members are being brought together in the temple. In other words, what Paul is saying is you and I together are the temple. The temple, Herod's temple, Solomon's temple, was the most holy site for the Jewish people. It was a place where God lived. For them, the temple was a place where heaven and earth met. And so for Paul to come along and say, look, that temple's great, but God is building in you together a new temple The divisions within you need to go away. If you want to see heaven and earth meet in your life, the divisions within you need to dissolve. The temple in Jerusalem is gone. You are now the temple. This would have been mind-blowing for the Jewish people. They'd be like, 
wait, what are you saying about our temple? The temple is now me. It is absolutely re- uh, revolutionary on one end, and it's also very disturbing on the others. Liberating and revolutionary and disturbing. This meant that the church that embodied the new humanity was the place where people would gather that have nothing in common but Christ, and he would be in their midst. No, nobody else in that day was saying anything similar to this. But this is exactly what Jesus modeled, right? Luke 6, he says, Simon, come follow me. Simon's a zealot. A zealots are, are, they say that Seattle people always have sturdy shoes on in case a hike needs to happen. Um, you heard that yet? Maybe not. It's probably true. Look at your footwear. Um, sorry, you have boat shoes. But they were always prepared for something, right? So, so the zealots always had a sword on them because they were always prepared for, for a, a revolt against Rome. So they had a sword with them at all times. One thing that the zealots hated most, and we can probably agree on this, they hated paying taxes. Because taxes went to Rome, and Rome was putting their thumb on the people of Israel. And they tried to revolt against it with Maccabees, but there were still some other people. So they were ready to start a riot at any point. So Jesus calls Simon, who's a zealot. He says, come, follow me. Simon comes. Then... Jesus walks up to a dude named Matthew. He says, follow me. Anyone know what Matthew is? Matthew's a tax collector. So you have a tax collector, and you have a zealot, and I can see them sitting on opposite sides of the row going, oh boy, what are we going to do here? Jesus is creating a new humanity. The division between a tax collector and a zealot is now gone away. What do they have in common? Jesus. Nothing else do they have in common but Jesus. And so this is where the rubber meets the road for all of us. And here's where it hits for me. I love building walls where Jesus has taken them down. Jesus goes all demo day, right? And takes out every single wall. But I kind of go, but I... I like that wall. I like that division. I like to judge the people that judge in church. It's so much fun. I'm sure you've tried it. We like to judge. We like to build walls. We like to put people in categories. We like to, or we, I'll say me, I like to have strong opinions on Christian speakers that I've never read or listened to. It's just a knee-jerk reaction about who they are. And I have these, these opinions. And what am I doing there? Building a wall. There are times for discernment, and this is what I tell myself. Oh, I'm just discerning. I'm discerning their spirits. I'm using my spiritual gift of discernment. I'm not. It's an excuse. I'm building a wall where there shouldn't be one. These are the, some of the walls that I build, and when I build these walls, I realize that the walls within my heart are enabling my heart not to be a place where heaven and earth meet. And what I learned from the Gospels and what I learned from Ephesians is incredibly disturbing. Because Jesus takes this whole how do we treat each other to a brand new level. He actually means what he says. In 1 John 4.20 it says this, Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love the God who they have not seen. This one scares me. 
Because if you look at this, we all do some sort of, maybe we don't hate, but we, we, we divide and, and we categorize and we put people in this place. And what's this saying? If you can't actually love this person. Now, loving doesn't mean you accept everything about them, but you treat them with a common decency. You treat them as someone who's also following Christ. If I can't do that with someone who I've actually seen, how can I do that with God? That we are good at building walls, but the new humanity is a group of people who are so smitten with Jesus, like a young couple in love, so smitten with Jesus that they don't look alike, we don't talk alike, we, don't have, we have different theological backgrounds, but Jesus is at the center so much that it's all we can talk about, and that's what we agree upon, and that's the foundation. This is why Paul says, this is the cornerstone of which our temple is built. The cornerstone was the first stone laid. It had to be laid at the exact right angle, and they'd start there. If the cornerstone was off, the whole building was off. So the cornerstone that unites us, how we build our temple, is Christ. Our primary identity as a Christ follower is Christ himself. This is how we relate with each other. There is one God, he says. There's one Jesus, and there's one hope. This is where the new humanity begins. So, is it easy? You can shake your heads no. It's never going to be easy. This is why 1 Peter says, make every effort to keep this unity. Effort. If it was easy, would it require effort? No. Effort. It's going to be hard because you're going to sit across the table from someone who you don't agree with and you're going to say, can we agree on Christ? This is why Bethany is, one of the core essentials at Bethany is in the essentials we have unity. Christ. We have unity around Christ. In the non-essentials, Glenn, you know it. Charity. And everything else, grace. We gather around Christ. Everything else, we have charity and grace. Christ is at the center of us. This is the new, new humanity a place because of Jesus where we relate to each other. In all of our brokenness, we realize that each one of us is in a process together. But as those people in a new humanity, we process, we live, we journey, and we also forgive and we become reconcilers to one another. The new humanity is a place where we pursue reconciliation because in the new humanity, it's not okay to not be okay with one another. In Matthew, Jesus is telling a story. He says, therefore, if you're offering a gift at the altar, remember, and you remember there that your brother or sister has something against you. Remember, it's something against you. You don't have something against them. If you realize that you've probably irritated somebody, this is what he's saying. Uh, they have something against you. Leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come offer your gift. Jesus was more, in, uh, more concerned about our reconciliation than he is our gifts. Jesus is concerned with how we live together. First Peter wasn't kidding. That is going to be a hard thing to do, to be reconciled to one another. Jesus shouldn't make us more nasty people. Jesus shouldn't make us more divided, more insecure, more, genful, more revengeful. But instead, he turns us into people who are pursuing wholeness. 
This is why when we celebrate communion, it's such a special time because we come together, we take of the bread and the cup who are both images of one body which we all come and we share in the body and the resurrection of Christ. And so today we take communion. If you're new to communion or you're new here and you're not comfortable and you don't feel like taking communion, don't. After this passage, we shouldn't be judging you. It'll be okay. Just sit out. It's fine. But as you came in today, you were given a bulletin. And inside the bulletin is a piece of paper. Uh, If you would do me a favor and pull out that blank piece of paper. If you have a pen, awesome. If you don't, see if you can borrow one because I want us to do something. We're going to take this Matthew passage a little bit more serious than we usually do. Before we take communion, I'm going to ask us to pause. And on that paper, we all will write something. It's okay. I'm going to write that I'm a judger. Uh, On your paper, I want you to identify perhaps a wall that you have constructed in your heart that Jesus has torn down. Perhaps you're with me. You delight in categorizing people. Maybe you can release the judgment. Maybe you release the critical spirit. And there you can bring healing. Maybe you've been hurt by the church, or more specifically, you've been hurt by an individual in the church. And you need, to be for, you need to start the process of reconciliation and forgiving. Maybe that person has tried to control you. And today you tear down the wall that releases judgment over them. You forgive. Maybe you've spoke, spoken poorly about a community, a group of people. Maybe it's a uh, speaker, writer, pastor that you've never heard, but you've already judged. Who would do such a thing? And this whole gossip and slander thing is a problem for you. Maybe you write down that on this piece of paper. Perhaps you need to apologize to somebody. Perhaps you've rubbed somebody the wrong way and you've hurt them. Maybe before you take communion, you write their name down and you go outside, you make a phone call. Or if they're here, you pull them aside and say, hey, we need to be reconciled together. This new humanity doesn't have divisions how we relate together as a body of believers, where there's judgment, where there's barriers, where does reconciliation need to take place? So as we pause and we identify, uh, write down those things. Then we take communion. We're going to do it differently. Usually we say go down respective aisles. We're all going to come down the center aisle. And here on the front is a box. Place your paper in the box and then take communion. We'll be on the sides waiting for you, on both sides. I'll have the gluten-free stuff if you need that. So I'm going to pray, then we're going to pause, and then when you hear the music coming, when you hear the music play, uh, you can begin to respond. Pray with me. Father, (coughs) you have taken down the divisions between us. With your death, with your resurrection, you have torn down the walls. You've ripped up the tape. And you said, this is one house built on one cornerstone and divisions bring cracks to that foundation. And so, God, we confess to you that at times we are divided in our hearts and in our souls. And so, Lord, I pray that you would unite us under the vision of you on the cross. Everything goes back to that central event in history. Lord, I pray that we would agree on you 
And then from there, everything else just happens. For we elevate Christ today. May you bring to mind the things in our hearts that are causing division, that are making divides within us. Would we be, have the courage to confess? And Lord, may it, where it's possible, may we have the courage to pick up the phone and reconcile. If not in this moment, in a moment later today. God, may we not be divided any longer. And in that unity within us all, Lord, may we be uh, representations of your temple where the Spirit of God dwells and where God is seen and where heaven and earth meet. Because nobody else has that kind of unity besides your family. So, Lord, may you heal our divides. In Jesus' name.